Hello and welcome to the LSE Africa Summit podcast. For everyone listening today, the LSE Africa Summit is a two-day summit on contemporary Africa taking place on the 22nd and 23rd of April this year. But we'll be bringing you interviews and content like this in the run-up to the summit and all through the year afterwards, so stay tuned. My name is Justin Villamil. I'm the summit correspondent, and the interview you're about to hear was recorded with Professor Catherine Boone here in her office at the LSE in London. Fair warning, uh, because of this, you may hear some sounds of London in the background. Catherine is a professor of comparative politics and African political economy here at the London School of Economics and has authored a number of books, including Property and Political Order in Africa, Land Rights and the Structure of Politics, and Political Topographies of the African State. Catherine also serves on the steering committee of the American Political Science Association's Africa Initiative and the advisory board of the Social Science Research Council's African Peacebuilding Network. She's a specialist in all things relating to land rights in an African context, so we are very excited to have her on the podcast. Without further ado, Professor Catherine Boone. Um, first off, I wanted to ask you how it was you got involved in the study of property in Africa. What, what was it that, that really interested you? Thanks for asking about um, my interest in land. So I'm a political scientist, and I've been working in the area of political economy for about 30 years. And I actually didn't start in land. I started in industry and um, commerce and agriculture. And I was just gradually drawn to land because of the um, political salience and really the foundational role of land in African economies, but African political systems also. Right. Uh, that's fantastic. Now, you've made a number of really important contributions to the study of African political economy. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything specific that you've written over the years that you feel has really made a difference and that you're particularly proud of. Well, I think that land work that you brought up at the beginning is something that I would really like to keep working on for another 10 or maybe even 20 years because of its importance. I think there's just so much to say that um, I am proud of having started or widened the debates about land. It, most African people, 70% of African population, still live in the rural areas, and most depend on agriculture for a livelihood. So... If you begin to talk about African economies or African populations or poverty or economic transformation, you're inevitably talking about agriculture and land, at least in part. And the really interesting thing about land is that um, most people in Sub-Saharan Africa access land through political relationships with government and also more local level political relationships. And the fascinating thing from a political science perspective is that this is an entire world of institutions and politics and political contracting, bargaining, and political struggle that's been almost completely invisible in the literature. So we don't really have a way of reading these lands relationships and land politics in a way that makes it understandable for people who are interested in broader questions of politics and broader questions of state structure and broader questions of economy. So what I've tried to do is to try to draw some of these linkages that makes it even possible to start beginning to talk about land and state society relations, land and elections, land and political debate and conflict within African countries about really the future of entitlements, the future of citizenship, the future of 
economies, um, and really to open up a new a new way of thinking and talking about African politics. It's been, I think, largely inaccessible for people in the West. I don't think there's any mystery here for people inside African countries, although Africans are very interested in the comparative aspects. So people in Uganda are really interested in land debates in Kenya and in Cote d'Ivoire. People in Burkina Faso are really interested in land debates in in Ghana, but the whole political salience of land is not something that would surprise any African person from anywhere on the continent. Right, right. That's interesting. That, I think that was one of the things that really came across when I was yeah. reading um, your your most recent book. It's just that it brings land into the debate in a way that it just hasn't been. Right. It, it hasn't been framed that way, um, at least from my perspective. Now, I was wondering if I could follow up a little bit on that. Um, so, in your most recent book, you give a typology between neo-customary land regimes and statist land regimes, and you say that this really frames a lot of the stakes of African political economy generally. I was wondering if you could give maybe a quick explanation of what this typology is and, and why it's so important. So most people who have ventured into the problem of African land tenure regimes or tried to understand it have had a very general idea of customary land tenure in Africa, but the mm -hmm. basic wrap or the basic um, analytic frame is that Every customary land tenure regime is unique, and they're all very diverse, and they're all very cultural and particularistic and linked uh, into very arcane and locally specific rules and customs. And so people have had an idea that, you, that there's a, something called customary land tenure, they've not really known what it was, and they've depicted it as bewilderingly diverse. Mm -hmm. And so what I tried to do in this book project is say a few things. First is we need to understand this so-called customary land tenure a little bit better and understand that this is not something that sort of emerges out of deep Africa and pre-colonial times and these very hard to understand and locally particular African cultures. So-called customary land tenure is really an institutional form of land management that's been codified and institutionalized by states. Right. So starting with a colonial state, but post-colonial states also use this as a kind of an institutional form of land tenure. There's nothing, at one level, there's nothing very idiosyncratic or arcanely culturally specific about it. So customary or neo-customary land tenure is part of government land management systems everywhere in modern Africa. Mm -hmm. So that's one point. They have generic features. They're similar in some generic ways. We can understand this as an institutional type. And, and the other main point was to say, well, hey, actually, this doesn't prevail everywhere. There are very important parts of almost every agricultural sector in every African country that... Uh, wherein land is not governed by customary land tenure, where you have direct state control over, over land, agricultural land and other kinds of land too, especially forests, where you know this, there's nothing neo-customary about it. This is just direct, uh, more or less state property. And that this kind of distinction is really important in a whole number of ways. So one important thing about it is that neo-customary land tenure is something that governments established by contract with local people. So it's, a, it's an institutionalized form of land management that governments recognize that does give some local people some rights over land tenure and land access. It's a form of government. It's a part of state-society relations. It's really political. It's really important. Mm -hmm. 
You can't understand government. You can't understand rural government in rural Africa unless you understand that. The second thing is these big parts of the rural territory in every country that are directly controlled by government have very different political dynamics. There is no recognition of any rights of anyone except the government. And this makes a very the big difference when you try to understand the politics of managing land in those territories. Forest land, national parks, and some parts of the agricultural sector that are directly managed by states. A very different set of political dynamics. Right, right. I was wondering if I could actually ask you about this in the context of the most recent election, particularly in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, because in your book, you, you trace the violent and often land-based history of, of uh, regime change in Cote d'Ivoire and um, the rise of opposition parties based around the issue of land dis- dispossession. And um, just recently, of course, we've seen back in October the relatively peaceful re-election of Ouattara. I'm wondering if anything, if we can frame this debate in a land reform land rights approach and what you think has changed here? Okay, that, that's a great question. And if I can, I can just zoom out mm-hmm. uh, at first in responding to your question. So if we can go back to the distinction, sort of a broad distinction between neo-customary and statist land tenure regimes. So this um, political distinction is extremely salient in most African countries. So in most African countries, there's debates on the table about how much land should be governed under these two regimes and what government should be able to do with the statist land and what it shouldn't and really the scope and limits of the meaning of the neo-customary. So one thing that's interesting about bringing this out is that a lot of political scientists will tell you directly that in, let's say, African public sphere or in African elections, there are no real issues. People say, you know, the African people are just voting on the basis of ethnicity or they're just voting for whichever big man will bring benefits to Mm -hmm. their town or village. So I think that's a profoundly incorrect reading of what's going on. And in the land tenure domain, we see some of these really big questions of a public policy, questions of distribution and redistribution, and questions really of state structure playing out in the political arena. So one thing that has happened in Cote d'Ivoire over the last 20 years is a very, very bitter struggle over the status of the so-called neo-customary rights. Mm -hmm. So in Cote d'Ivoire, these two different land systems prevailed, basically in different areas, but in some well-defined parts of the country, some zones of a highly developed commercial agriculture, there was a sort of tension or clash between these two different forms of land management. And the clash between groups vested in these two opposite forms of land management helped to fuel their civil war. Mm-hmm. So Cote d'Ivoire had a kind of civil war, or not war, not peace, a stalemate for 10 years. But finally, one party prevailed via military action mm-hmm. and uh, followed in the wake of a disputed election. So Alison Watra came to power. So Watra and his supporters represent one very political and well-defined pole in this debate. Mm -hmm. Watra and his coalition basically support the extension of more direct state control over land in southern Cote d'Ivoire. So the extension of a status land tenure regime in southern, Mm -hmm. not northern, Cote d'Ivoire. So we have in Cote d'Ivoire right now, a kind of conquest state, a government that or a government that really came to power in part through elections, but 
decisively through military conquest. Mm -hmm. So with the aid of interna uh, international, the inter international forces in the international community. So the recent election that we had really was a ratification of the complete hegemony of this Watra coalition. So it was very little overt debate about land, but the Watra government in power for the last five years and under its first mandate and now for the next five years will go ahead very decisively reforming and restructuring the land tenure regime of Cote d'Ivoire around this more statist model. So there are still these disaffected forces that are very furious about this, who feel dispossessed and alienated, but they've not, they were not really able to mount a coherent challenge in the last election. That's, and they know that, which is why they keep mumbling and murmuring about taking power a different way or destabilizing mm. the country in other ways. So there's still a very tense security situation in Cote d'Ivoire, but um, basically the recent elections ratified the triumph of the Watra coalition, which represented one very distinct pull in this struggle over land. Right. So this is uh, not... You know, or I suppose it's it's in competition with the the, the narrative that we get most often from uh, many media outlets, just saying, "What a wonderful time!" For Cote d'Ivoire, we've seen a peaceful election, but you're saying that the underlying issues just have not been resolved. It's just been paved over by a hegemonic single party. Is that well? I think um, you know if you look at politics historically in any country. Mm -hmm. Part of what politics is, is winners imposing their vision, mm -hmm. and for better or for worse. You know, in the United States, we had a terrible civil war in the 1860s. We had one side lost, one side won, and the winners went on to own history and to impose their vision. And I think most people now in the 21st century, we think it's natural that the North won the Civil War and that, you know, that was in the inevitable march of history. And so in Cote d'Ivoire, there's been a war, there's a winner, they're imposing their vision. Of course, the losers will hope to take back some of what they've lost and to rewrite uh, part of the last um, 10 years, and they hope to be able to, to win political power later and to regain um, and re reassert some of what they hope to achieve through politics, but there's a very good chance they'll not be able to. But I think, yeah, it is an imposition of a, of a hegemony or a hegemonic vision, and um, for better or for worse, that is a political process. That's mm -hmm. history moving forward in Cote d'Ivoire. Right. Um, I wanted to ask about another part of this land debate, because when you say, you know, land reform, especially in an African context, the thing that immediately springs to mind is land grabs. Um, and I wanted to ask about this. Well, first of all, some of the rhetoric that we've heard about land grabs, particularly Chinese land grabs in recent media coverage, has been disputed by some academics. Um, I know Deborah Bradigan, for example, has a, published a new book um, contesting a lot of the numbers we've seen. Uh, what's your perspective on this? Is it sometimes exaggerated or... What do you think about that? Well, the whole land grab is a great topic because mm -hmm. the question is, I think the question that motivates the analysis of land grabs is, will African smallholders, regular small families, household scale agriculture, will 
this kind of agriculture survive? And will African people be able to stay on the land, farming the land um, that they have farmed for decades, in some cases for centuries? So I think the debate comes from a very real concern about how the historical process as it careens forward in the 21st century will affect smallholder agriculture in Africa. So the land grabs. Um, I think I agree with the analysts who have argued that um, there is a global corporate interest in acquiring African farmland. That is definitely, definitely the case. The Chinese, I agree with the critics of the global discourse who say that the Chinese have been singled out unfairly. So the big land grabbers, if you want to put it that way, include the Americans, the Canadians, the Saudi Arabians, the Indians, and a whole, the Brazilians, a whole scale of internet, a whole array of international actors of which the Chinese are not the leading or the most aggressive. Mm -hmm. So the land grabbing is we should maybe start by talking about the Americans and the Canadians and um, and some of the other players and then bring in the Chinese. The second thing, though, to say about the land grab is that the land grabbing has not been as efficient and uh, rapid as some of the early critics feared because it has turned out to be actually quite a bit more difficult for these global corporate agribusiness to acquire land um, than some of these actors hoped at the at the outset. With respect to my own research, some of what my work reveals is that much of what people on the ground really experience as land grabbing is their own governments mm -hmm. and rich people within their own countries taking their land. So in Kenya, for example, if you open the newspaper and start reading about land grabbing in Kenya, people will be talking about uh, the big wig who lives next door grabbing land, or their member of parliament grabbing land, or maybe the government grabbing land, or maybe the members of the ministry of land um, taking properties for themselves. It won't be necessarily about the Chinese or the Americans or anyone else. So there's a lot of this very, very, let's say, domestic land grabbing that is a huge phenomenon that really requires sustained attention. One thing that my research can help reveal about this process is that a lot of the land grabbing, both on the international, sort of the international corporate interest in African land, as well as this more domestic land grabbing, is land grabbing of, or the attempts to take, or the takings of land that is classified as state land. Mm -hmm. So it's land that is under a, a formal tenure regime that gives the state complete prerogative to give or take. So often it's not sort of these core village territories or land that is currently being used under customary, so-called neo-customary tenure. It's lands under status land tenure regimes where the state itself can claim direct and unmediated um, control. So land grabbing, a perfect example would be the privatization of forest land. Mm -hmm. So there's no neo-customary community or owner claiming rights to that land. It is land that the state can give and re-give and reallocate to someone else without eliciting claims of neo-customary ownership. So a lot of the land grabbing is on the state, st land under what I would call status land tenure regime. That's very interesting, actually, because um, I, I was going to ask how it enters this dynamic between status and, and sort of neo-customary the the uh, the terms that that you set down, is this 
is it generalizable this this statement that it's, it's normally in a statist regime that this happens, or does it also happen in in a neo-customary regime, say? And then the other part of that, if I may, is that I'm wondering if this matters the actor that comes in to do the land grabbing, if, if it's an individual, if it's a corporate entity, or if it's a corporate entity specifically backed by a government and a powerful government. I'm wondering if that enters into the political calculus either way. Right, so that's a very interesting set of questions. So first, with respect to the neo-customary and the statist, mm -hmm. I think we can say that governments like to reallocate land under a status land tenure regime to investors because they are less politically encumbered by neo-customary claims. Mm -hmm. However, a lot of the politics then becomes around reclassifying land. So the governments want to take what the people on the ground may think they have neo-customary entitlement to and then reclassify that as status land and then give it away. So in Tanzania, for example, what the government is doing is saying, okay, we recognize this kind of neo-customary land tenure, what they call customary land tenure, uh, of, under village management in the rural areas. And so they'll say, okay, you're a village and you have 100 square, uh, let's say the village thinks they have, you know, the land from here to the um, escarpment or from here to the, to the river or from here to on the other side of that hill. So what the government will come and do is say, well, okay, you do have your customary jurisdiction over this land, but we're going to draw a line around your customary jurisdiction. And it's not from here to the mountain, it's from here to uh, five, uh, five kilometers from here. We're going to draw land there and everything outside this line or beyond the line is actually ours, it belongs to the government, we're going to give it away to someone else. And so there's this kind of intermediate step of reclassifying the land or asserting status control before it's reallocated to, let's say, a big investor. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a lot of what's going on also in the Cote d'Ivoire right now. Um, so it's kind of moving these institutional boundaries around different types of land. It's another process that underscores the salience of these institutional forms of, of tenure. Then the question you ask about what kinds of private parties or outsiders or land grabbers are taking what kind of land where, it's an excellent question. So actually I have a graduate student who I hope is coming to the LSE next year to mm -hmm. start working on precisely this question in Kenya mm -hmm. and um, Uganda because as your question suggests, it will surely be different types of actors strategizing in different ways to acquire different kinds of land in different mm -hmm. in different ways. And so I think there really, really is a lot to, um, a lot of research to do there. I think when you're talking about encroachment on what we would call neo-customary land, the kind of a model that it seems, you know, sort of the simple story that certainly happens, but the simple understanding, the simple story of land grabbing, I think that is mostly very local people. Mm -hmm. So it could even be the chief of the village saying, yes, this is neo-customary land, but I'm our family is the most important family in this village, and so we're actually going to take this land for ourselves, and we're going to make a um, tourist uh, reserve out of it, and we're going to get all the money from this and keep it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a privatization or enclosure of neo-customary land, but on the part of a very, very local, politically powerful person. I think when you talk about the big agribusiness companies coming from Canada or the U.S., these companies are acquiring vast tracts of land held directly by the state under statist land tenure. Right. Right.
That's absolutely fine. I guess uh, definitely a developing field there. That's, mm-hmm. that's very interesting. Um, right. I, 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 of course, have to ask you one big sweeping question. So considering what we've been speaking about, um, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to African development in terms of land reform on the continent? I mean, land reform is a big term. Mm-hmm. What most African countries are doing right now and what's really on the agenda is land law reform. Right. Land law reform. So it's a redefining or specification of the rules around land holding, land access, and transfer. Mm-hmm. Transfer of land from, let's say, a local owner to transferring ownership even to an outsider. So I think the biggest obstacle to good outcomes or the biggest challenge is that the people most concerned and the people who control most of the land today are people without much political power. So the biggest obstacle to getting good outcomes or the biggest challenge is really finding ways to empower people who are in communities on the land producing food and commercial crops. I mean, the people who, that 70% of the African population, that these are the poorest 50% of the population of every country in the rural areas, and these are the people also who will uh, feed themselves, who will feed their countries, who will feed the region, and who hopefully will generate agricultural surpluses that can fuel development. But these people aren't very politically powerful. So democracy has not really produced, the, or electoral democracy as introduced over the last 15 years, hasn't really produced the kind of dividends that people hoped for for small, farm, small farmers yet. So they're not very well organized constituencies. And so I think really there it is this challenge of empowering the people who need to use their political power and political influence to get outcomes that serve their interests. Anything that disempowers farmers or people in the rural areas is going to be a bad omen for land law reform that that helps ordinary people, it helps people who are on the land right now. So I think that's the biggest the biggest the biggest challenge is figuring out some of the obstacles to the empowerment of people who are on the land and farming the land and then trying to think about ways to resolve those or alleviate some of those barriers to political to political power and influence on the part of, of ordinary farmers. Great. Well, I see we're at the end of time here. Um, but as always, just absolutely fascinating to talk about your research. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Uh, really appreciate that. Thanks very much indeed for inviting me. We would like to thank everybody listening to this podcast and remind you to go visit the LSE Africa Summit website at lseafricasummit.com for any questions, to register for the event, or to stay tuned for more interviews we'll run in future. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.